five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher, and this is the Space Q Podcast. This week, we have another special recording from the recent Canadian Aeronautics and Space Institute's Astro 2019 conference in Laval, Quebec. In this podcast, you'll hear from startups and veterans on how to scale up your business. The panel was moderated by Christine Tovey of CatX Technology, who is also a member of the Space Advisory Board. The panelists included startups, Keynet and its CEO, Cordell Grant, Reaction Dynamics CEO, Bashar Elazine, GHGSAT CEO, Stéphane Germain, whose company qualifies as a startup, though Stéphane has been in the business a long time and also serves on the Space Advisory Board. Lastly, Daniel Schulten of MDA was the big company representative on the panel. He is, however, leading MDA's new Launchpad initiative, which aims to accelerate and grow partnerships from small and medium businesses and academia in Canada. It was a fascinating panel. If you're starting a business, you'll want to listen in. Good morning, everybody. Uh, My name is Christine Tovey. Uh, and I have the pleasure to uh, moderate this panel of four very interesting and insightful people. Today's topic is really about how to go from startup to scaling a space sector business. Uh, we've seen around the world uh, how Elon Musk does it and, and seen the explosion of SpaceX onto the launcher market. And some studies say that there are approximately another 100-plus launcher startups in the wings hoping to come and and serve this this expanding market. We see the demand for space-based information and and services exploding around the world. Uh, It's becoming a global industry. And really, we're looking to see how do you take a good technological idea and make a business and serve a market sector in that area. we're really going to explore some of the questions of how uh, a company scales technologically, scales their market, scales their organization, and see what these people have done in, in their areas of, of uh, success. So first of all, I'll, I'd like to, what we'll do is I'll introduce each speaker. They'll give us some opening remarks on what their experience with scaling is, and then we'll get into uh, a a question, answer, and conversational aspect. And hopefully, we'll also invite some questions um, from from the floor. So uh, please be ready to engage with us. So our first uh, speaker is Stéphane Germain from uh, GHG Chat. Stéphane graduated from Queen's University uh, in engineering physics and then went on to do an MBA in Europe. Uh, he started at SPAR and is, has over 25 years of experience in the aerospace industry in both small and large companies. And started GHC, GHGSAT um, in 2011 to answer a market need for consistent high-quality greenhouse gas emissions from industrial facilities worldwide. So, Stefan, why don't you tell us a little bit about what scaling means to you? Sure. Thanks, thanks Christine. Actually, yeah, why don't I stand up? Thank you. So GHGSAT, uh, just to give you a bit of an introduction, uh, as Christine just said, is a company that's first and foremost, it exists to measure industrial greenhouse gas emissions from facilities around the world. The system and the business was designed from the get-go for that sole purpose. We perceived a market need, and we designed a system to serve that market need. So. That market need, to be more precise, why do people pay us for greenhouse gas data? It's it's not immediately obvious to just about anybody I talk to. And the first reason why people pay for that kind of data is because it's worth money to them. Believe it or not, greenhouse gas emissions, in some, some types of greenhouse gas emissions, are leaked money. So methane, which is the primary constituent of natural gas, is a product for the oil and gas industry. And they really care about big leaks. So they want to find their big leaks fast because it saves them money. The second reason why they care a lot about their greenhouse gas emissions and they'll pay us for the data is because there's increasingly a question of social license, of a need to 
really understand your impact as a, as a business on the global climate. And that's, again, very true in the oil and gas industry, but it's also true in power generation, in uh, landfill management, and several other industries. The third reason why people pay us is because, uh, in some cases, again, greenhouse gas emissions are dangerous and can actually kill people. So methane in underground coal mines, almost every year, there's explosions because of high concentrations of methane. So if there's a way to detect those high concentrations early, you can actually save lives. So for all those reasons, people actually pay us or, uh, and are interested, there's a value, there's a need to understand greenhouse gas emissions. Now why do all that from space? There's all kinds of solutions on the ground. What makes space a better platform for doing that? And the answer is probably familiar to a lot of people in this audience, but it isn't so obvious to the oil and gas industry and the waste management industry. And the first part of that is economies of scale and, and actually more precisely economies of scope. With a single platform, one satellite in polar sun sink orbit, we can monitor the entire planet, any site on the surface of the Earth approximately every two weeks. That means we can amortize the cost of measuring any one facility over and with that one platform over thousands and thousands of different measurements. So provide a tremendous cost advantage. The second reason is that we can actually, uh, with the same platform, see any type of emission in the world and therefore provide an apples-to-apples -apples benchmark between different types of facilities. And that's not always really obvious. If you want to compare a, a thermal generating station in China to one in the United States, it, have, it helps a lot to have a common basis on which to do that. So having the same instrument measuring both sites makes a big difference. So without getting into too much more detail, because I could talk all day, let me just talk about the slide that's up, this one slide that's up behind me. And that's an actual measurement from our satellite. So we launched our first satellite in 2016. And uh, we learned an awful lot with the satellite. But the most important thing is that we actually proved that the system worked, that you can measure emissions from individual sites with a single pass from a satellite the size of a microwave oven. A few years ago, I stood at this conference and was challenged that this would never work. Well, this is proof that it does, and I have many other examples that it does. So what you're looking at here is a, the black and white image in the background is the surface reflectance of the Earth in the shortwave infrared. It, this one is actually not from our satellite. It's borrowed from Sentinel-2, but it's the same thing we would see with our satellite. And what we've overlaid on that in false color is concentrations of methane coming from a leak. So the left-hand panel shows you the wider field of view, but four kilometers by four kilometers. Our, our field of view is actually 12 by 12. And on the right-hand panel, you, you just zoom in. And what you can see is with the 25-meter GSD, surface spatial, spatial resolution, you can actually identify the site that that came from. That's a world first. That's, that wasn't possible until we launched our first satellite. And we happened to know who that operator is. We contacted them. They went and checked it out. And sure enough, it was a facility, that, a, a particular process in the facility that was leaking, and they fixed it. So that is important to the operators, generates revenue for us, and makes, makes what we think is a sustainable business model. So we're really excited for the future. We have our next launch coming up in September. We're launching on the Ariane Spas Vega launch, uh, or mission on September 9th. Our next satellite's gonna have about an order of magnitude improvement performance compared to our first satellite. Like I said, we learned a lot of things. And uh, the next one after that's also in manufacturing right now, and it's gonna be for a launch in the first half of 2020. And beyond that, and this is probably more directly topical to this panel, uh, we're also raising funding for our next 10. So we're right in the middle of this adventure of what it's all about to start and grow and scale a business in the space sector. We're not, not quite up to the standards of Elon Musk yet, but we're working on it. And we're very enthusiastic and, frankly, having a great time doing it. So with that, maybe I'll hand it back over to you, Christine. Okay. All right. I actually think I'm going to sit down to do this rather than tr uh, dance at the podium. So uh, the next person is, is Cordell Grant. Uh, Cordell is also from the small sat industry. He's been in it for over 15 years. Um, he started out at Space, space Flight Laboratory, 
uh, on a number of world-first programs, such as CanX2 and the Bright Constellation, as well as GHGSAT. Uh, he's now the Chief Operating Officer at Sinclair Interplanetary uh, in Toronto, where, you know, talking about scaling, you say you triple the production capacity uh, in just two years. So that, that's quite a scaling um, success. Uh, and you've also now taken on another hat as CEO and co-founder of KeyNet, uh, a startup working to commercialize space-based quantum key distribution. So you're at the start of a new uh, adventure. So uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, thanks very much. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, as, as alluded to, I worked with uh, Stefan and when I was at the Space Flight Lab on, on GHG SAT-D, looked at what they were doing, and I said, I need that kind of stress in my life. <laughs> and, and here we are today. Um, so uh, yeah, I mean, quantum key distribution, uh, what KeyNet is doing is, is basically satellite-based uh, quantum key distribution, and that's a mouthful that it uh, probably doesn't mean a lot to anybody uh, who isn't already initiated into to that terminology, uh, but essentially we're building an ultra-secure encryption network, a uh, global ultra-secure encryption network using satellites, um, and a technology known as quantum key distribution. And, and to understand how that fits into the global encryption world, uh, you need to know a little bit about encryption, which is why I have the slide here. So. Most people tend to think of uh, encryption as being a lock, and you want to secure your data as securely as possible. Uh, and you think of the key challenge there as being making that lock as strong as possible. The reality is that's not actually the challenge of encryption today. The true challenge is actually distributing the keys to those locks to the people who need them without the risk of them falling into the wrong hands. This is what's called the key distribution problem, and it's fundamental to encryption. It's as long as we've been encrypting data for literally two thousands of years, this has been the problem that we've been trying to, to fundamentally overcome. And in 2019, it turns out that there are fundamentally only two ways that you can, uh, you can distribute keys. The first way is what's known as public key cryptography. So you may be familiar with um, prime factoring methods. It's very easy to multiply two numbers together, very difficult to factor those two numbers relative to the ease of, of multiplying them together. So that's sort of the, the mathematical basis for public key cryptography. And the problem there is that we're in a period of upheaval in the computing industry. The quantum computer is coming. It's inevitable. The only question is how many years it's going to take. Some people will tell you three years and we'll have quantum computers that can break public key cryptography. Some people say five or, or ten. It doesn't really matter. Uh, there's data today that is being encrypted using that technology that has lifetimes of decades, and this is a huge problem. The second way you can do key distribution is, believe it or not, in 2019, by hand. Uh, literally carrying code books in, in diplomatic pouches or shipping hardware, crypto boxes all over the, the planet. Um, it's expensive, it's time consuming, it has a lot of other problems, uh, but for high security applications it's really the only way to do it. Um, and quantum key distribution, without going into the details of how it works, uh, uses beams of light to uh, basically give you a third method of key distribution um, that you know, has never existed before in history. And, and it's a truly fundamentally different way of doing key distribution and solving that problem. Uh, and the reason why satellites are involved at all is because if you try to send, do quantum key distribution over fiber optic cable, uh, you, you're limited to about 100 or 200 kilometers in, in distance. And if you want to do this on a global scale, now you need to start actually doing it via satellite instead. Uh, so you go up uh, from the ground to a satellite, and the satellite would go around in, in much the same way that Stefan just described, covering the whole planet if you put it in the right orbit, and you do key exchange between two locations. The satellite now enables you to distribute those keys uh, ultra-securely uh, using quantum key distribution between any two points on the ground. And the final thing I'll say, <laughs> this is a space conference, uh, so the, I'll plant the seed for how do you uh, distribute keys to spacecraft after they've been launched. Um, obviously, with the exception of the ISS, you don't get them there by hand. Nobody's using public key distribution. We'll talk more about that later. Thanks, Cordell. Sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, I think there's two things that both you and Stefan have brought up, is this idea of using space to solve a problem that people may not even think of space when, when, they're, when they're working at it. But you know, it's interesting, you now have to uh, also interface with space 
systems to be, allow them to do their own work. So you're in a kind of a little bit different position than, than you were before in terms of providing a service to, to a space, space constellation or something. So we'll come back to those sort of questions on how that works. Um, like to move on to Bashar Elzine. Uh, Bashar and I have had a few chats at CDL, but um, Bashar, you're now Chief Executive Officer as well as CTO of Reaction Dynamics. Uh, and you are overseeing the development of uh, a launch, new launch vehicle based on a new type of rocket engine, a hybrid exactly. rock fuel rocket engine. Uh, so why don't you tell us a bit about that and, and where do you see that scaling? Thank you, Christine. So um, the company is uh, rather recent. We didn't get to the point where we are scaling uh, operations and we're not launching yet. Uh, but the cool thing is that that engine was uh, demonstrated. We're testing now on a, on a weekly basis. So as you said earlier, there's about now 200 companies in the world trying to make uh, launchers for small satellites. So satellites are getting uh, smaller and smaller, but they're also getting more numerous. Uh, but actual solutions uh, with launch vehicles are not entirely uh, dedicated nor entirely adequate for those satellites who want to get to specific orbits or want to get to uh, a place that might be different from what a heavy launcher is looking for. Uh, so heavy launchers now, the, the way it works is you have um, a prime payload and then you have a, a, a sum of secondary payloads. Uh, you might have just uh, one launcher that will launch a lot of small satellites, but the orbit that will be reached is, is not really optimal for any of these satellites. So either it end up on the wrong altitude, uh, either it's, it's the wrong inclination, etc. So there's a big market now for companies making uh, small sat launchers. So launch vehicles that are um, dedicated to launch those satellites one at a time or, or even uh, a, a small constellation of three, four, let's say. Um, what Reaction Dynamics is doing is we are trying to um, enable dedicated launch for small satellites, but at the same price point as heavy launchers. So the problem with heavy launchers is they're not dedicated, and the problem with dedicated launch services is they're not, uh, they, they're not cheap, they're very expensive. So customers are often paying a premium of three, four, even seven times to have a dedicated launch service. We want to enable that kind of service, but at the same price point of a heavy launcher. And we are able to do so with our proprietary uh, hybrid uh, rocket engine. So hybrids are not really new. Hybrids have been around since the 30s. Uh, but they've had uh, problems when it comes to the consistency of the combustion performance uh, of those systems. So it can have a good performance of a hybrid, something that is identical to LOX kerosene rocket engines, but for short durations, 10, 15, maybe 20 seconds. But if you want to scale up the burn time, um, you end up having um, I would say, performance that shifts. So uh, our solution is really to uh, solve that problem, and, and this is what we're trying to demonstrate, and we've been testing that engine for a while now, and by the end of the summer, we are looking for a full duration burn, uh, as well as another important milestone, which will be uh, a full truss or full scale engine, but for short duration burn. Um, so yeah, that's it pretty much. Great. Thanks, and last but not least, uh, Dan Schulten. <laughs> Uh, you graduated from the University of Twente, which I, I do know because I did a, 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 a summer job at the Aeros National Aerospace Laboratory in, in Amsterdam. So um, great university there. You did a master's in mechanical engineering uh, and then attended the ISS in Cleveland in 1998. Uh, you did a lot of work on the European robotic arm, which for Fokker, but that seems like a natural fit to move over to uh, MDA in 2001. And you've done, a, done many uh, positions in SSL, both in engineering and uh, business development as well for MDA. Uh, and now you're doing something a little bit different. You're now heading up MDA's Launchpad, uh, which is looking to grow partnerships with innovative small and medium-sized businesses. And I, I guess what I would like to know is, is how does that fit into a scaling strategy for a number of these businesses? How, how do partnerships uh, help with scaling as well? Okay, um, so yeah, I'm a little bit the odd one out on this panel because I, I, I don't run a startup, um, but I have been exposed to many startups and with, um, um, with Launchpad, which is our um, co collaboration portal for anybody that wants to work with MDA, has an idea, um, uh, wants to sell us something, 
um, uh, wants to work on a new technology, approach me, approach Launchpad. We'll have a conversation and we'll find, uh, see if we can find a match and how we can work together. It's a, it's a little bit new for MDA. It's a bit change in culture. Uh, we try to be very open uh, and honest with, with partners and, and really strive for those win-win scenarios. So hopefully also with a couple of um, startups we can create those collaborations and I'm, I'm working with a few of them uh, currently. Um, I've been fortunate in MDA. You mentioned I do engineering at MDA. No. No, my engineering degree has expired. It's, 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 it's business development. And I'm reminded by my engineering colleagues that it has expired. Um, but I've been very fortunate to, uh, to work with many brilliant engineers and entrepreneurs in my career at MDA and, and, and work with uh, startups. And I made a little collage of, the, of some of the successful and, and also unsuccessful uh, startups. Um, so the bottom left is actually one of our own. This, uh, uh, this is the Cassiope spacecraft, and uh, we had a cascade payload on it. And that business never materialized, and we can talk about why that happened and so on. Um, I won't go all, all of them for time, but the, the, the one I'm most proud of is RapidEye, which is the five spacecraft that you see at the top. Uh, a few days before their launch uh, in August 2008, and they're still all five flying and doing well. Um, we started working with RapidEye in 2001, as, uh, when I had more hair and less belly, as I sometimes say. And, uh, and it took us three years working with them to get the mission financed. So this is not for the faint of heart. And, uh, and in the end, uh, the business case that, um, that they originally pursued was not the business case that they um, actually implemented and started working with a few years uh, after the launch. So and that's maybe, a, and we can go in more detail uh, later in the panel. Yeah, absolutely. We'll, we'll, talk, we'll have a few questions on business case and business models, so we'll, we'll dive into that a little bit more. Okay, I'm uh, going to move on to more question and answer and hope uh, I'll, I'll call on a few panel members, but please, the others, if you've got something to contribute, please pipe in. This is, I'd rather you guys talking to each other than talking to me. Uh, so hopefully you guys will uh, find either common ground or some ground where you want to duke it out a bit. But um, let's, let's go into almost the elephant in the room. And I think we talked about this on the phone we were preparing for this. Uh, being a startup in Canada or being a, a space business in Canada, are you, what's it like to be in a country of 30 million versus a neighbor of over 300 million? Can you scale from here? Um, what, what are the advantages, and I'm going to call on Stefan again, the advantages and disadvantages of you growing your business from, from here? Okay, well, let's start by pointing out that Canada is a fantastic place to start a technology business. So the various programs that are available for technology development, low TRL technology development, and even up to you know, fair, fairly advanced sort of TRL 6 type maturity levels, an excellent place. There's some great programs with the Space Agency and many other uh, departments around the government, federal and provincial. However, um, going from TRL-6, initial demonstration, to scaling a business, uh, you have to go find some capital to do that. And there are very few funds that are in the technology business in Canada that are over $100 million worth of fund size. That means that if they've got a $100 million fund, they'll be writing checks that are in the size of about a million, which is not how you're going to get your Series B together. You might get a Series A, but you're not going to get a Series B, which is where typically scaling comes together. Can you just explain what a Series B is? Sorry. Okay. So in, in, the, in the rounds of raising funding for a company, there's typically, first of all, uh, friends and families. And this is when you really start the business and you're you're scraping money out of your pocket or go see mom and dad or something and see if you can get some money. And to, living in their garage. Living in the garage <laughs> and, you know, really doing, doing it rough. 
but then there's seed rounds where you get or angel investors, and then um, they'll get you to a certain stage. That's like $100,000, a few hundred thousand dollars. Next step after that is Series A. So when you've now uh, gotten to the point where technology is really ma reasonably mature, there's a, a venture investor is willing to take a bet on your technology, and those are typically in the five to ten million dollar range of total fundraise, and you're getting you're starting to get pretty serious there. Series B is when you're actually generating revenue and there is a clear path to profitability and you need money to scale. And so Series B, C and onwards, you go into multiple rounds depending on how fast you're growing, um, are a different challenge. So with that quick primer, yep. <laughs> the bottom line here is that uh, for, for we're raising a Series B right now, the, uh, the money is not in Canada. There are no technology funds in Canada that know how to spell the word satellite. And we truly have to be looking uh, internationally. So on our Series A, we raised money from strategics and financial investors in the United States and Europe, both. For our Series B, we've, I won't tell you how many we talked to, but a whole lot. And I'd say about 99% of the people we've talked to are outside of Canada. So Canada has a real challenge if we want to maintain the ownership and the control of our space startups in Canada, we have a real challenge to make that kind of funding available to our space startups. I'll leave it at that. Okay. Um, I'm going to ask Cordell. You're at the start of your, your, your journey on Keynet, um, but really it's, it's a global market and a global reach. So how does being in Canada place you to address a global market. We'll leave the funding because Stefan's sort of talked about that. Yeah, so I think, uh, I mean, number one, what we're doing has direct applicability to Canada. Um, so we do see there being a, a market for what we're, we're doing in Canada. But I think we'd be fooling ourselves if we believed that that was enough to sustain us. And so inevitably, a company like ours has to look globally and, and has to really be, be reaching outside the country from day one uh, to, to sell its product. Um, and that's what we've been doing. I mean, for one of the things that we found in, in, in our business is a lot of, uh, and this sort of ties into what Stefan was saying, a lot of the the companies you think of as technology companies in Canada, so telecommunications companies are, are a good example of this, don't actually do a lot of innovative R&D themselves. They actually follow the lead of, of international companies. So a Canadian telecom will, will literally just follow the lead of an international telecom and do whatever they, do, they see them doing. Uh, and then they see that as a, as a way to, uh, to save money in a sense. But uh, that means that you know, for us going to some of those companies is, is really useless. They're just going to do whatever they, they see other companies doing. And so we really, from day one, are reaching out to the entire, uh, entire world for our customer base. Um, and that's something that we see in other space companies that are successful in Canada as well. Um, there are good existence uh, proofs of successful space businesses in Canada. Sinclair Interplanetary is one. 95 plus percent of the business that that company does is outside of, of Canada. Awesome, because it's, it's not just the finance, but in terms of technology and how you, you, you create your business processes as well. To go global, those are other pillars that you have to have in place. Um, Bashar, <laughs> launch is actually, I would, in my opinion, one of the hardest things to do yeah. from Canada. So, so why are you here? Um, I would initially add to add, uh, like to add to what Stefan said. Um, well, why we're here, uh, I think it's, it's uh, a very good place to be. Uh, we've been extremely lucky and grateful to have uh, grants from the Canadian Space Agency, and Reaction Dynamics exists because of those grants. Otherwise, we'd still be doing our old jobs or, for me, being research associate, uh, which is not bad, but that company exists because we have been able to have that support. Um, Talent in Canada is, is exceptional. I'm able to work with the best and, and, and brightest, and that's something that I'm extremely uh, honored to have. The issue, as, as Stefan stated, is uh, funding. Um, in our case, while well, launch is hard, uh, VCs, I, I will talk about VCs and then we'll, we'll go to other points, but um, venture capital, um, you know, VCs will often have um, look at two things. They will either look at the, the, the market itself, the viability of the market and the, the business model, 
or they will look at the technology. And they will often take a risk or, or have a leap of faith on one of the two. But they will not have a leap of faith for both. So if they understand the technology, but they kind of are not sure about the market, if they believe that the technology will work, they may invest. Same thing for the market. If they're sure that there's a market for that technology, but they're kind of not really sure, and you know, they say, well, do your thing, um, they will invest. Uh, well, here we have the problem is, uh, as Stefan stated, uh, very few funds in Canada are specialized in hardware, even less in space, even less for launchers. So when you come with all these things, you just scare them away and they'll, they'll go running. And, and very often for startup making launchers, well, we believe will be extremely profitable, but not next year, not the year after. It may take four or five years. Uh, we have a, a very strong value proposition. Uh, we have extremely strong metrics. We have a, upwards of $200 million in letter of support and letters of interest from different customers. We have, securing, we are, we have secured patents, and we have a hard time finding two, $300,000 in Canada. Um, which is a bit um, upsetting. But I mean, we're looking with other investors, talking to other people, and, and I, I'm, I believe that we'll be able to, to, to make it happen. But uh, that, that's one of the things, is, is um, the, the, the very low tolerance to risks, I would say, uh, from certain uh, big corporate funds, VC funds. Uh, I'm very grateful to the angel investors we have. Uh, otherwise, we wouldn't be here again. Mm -hmm. uh, they liked the project and they decided to jump in and, and, and give us, you know, help us with that. Um, even though they, they, they are, they know that there's risk and they know that they may never recover their money back, but they couldn't care less. Okay. I'm, I'm going to be provocative here and, yeah. and just throw this out. Have you guys given anything up or been at a, at a disadvantage by not going to the U.S.? Have you sure. consciously oh, yeah, for sure. said, I'm going to sure. give that up because In, I'm going to stay here? Investment-wise, I would say yes. We look at valuations of other companies in the U.S. and we look at what those companies have done. And um, it's very hard to convince any VC in Canada that, yeah, we're worth... I mean, we look at other companies in the state that have been able to raise uh, in the millions and, and we look at what they've done technically and we look at the kind of market traction they've had and, and we're far beyond that and we're not able to. So, you know, we, we gotta, you know, survive, we gotta live and, and you have to fundraise. And in that case, well, you end up having to bring down your valuation a bit lower than what you would have expected. Some cases, much lower. Uh, I always want, I have a, one, of, one of my uh, advisors here in Canada helping us with investments. Uh, she says in Canada, there's always the, the, the factor, the three factor, the, the three, so whenever you, if you have a valuation that would work in the States, well, you cut it by three in Canada, and this is kind of what will work. Uh, and that's a bit sad because talent is here. Um, we have a lot of, uh, I mean, of course, there, there's no, you know, launch in Canada, something that's new, but that we have some, uh, we have a lot of, uh, um, we have a lot of people listening uh, government-wise and a lot of people helping. Um, but it's sad because when it comes to the, the, the finding investors, finding VCs, or finding any, any kind of capital, it's, it's hard because of that, yeah. Anything else? Uh, I'll, I'll say not yet. Not yet, not okay. yet. <laughs> uh, because we are seeing, yeah, you're right, I, I know a number of VCs and they're looking at Canada because they do see the valuations as taking a hit and it's, it's actually attracting people um, to that. And, but um, the other thing is a talent, um, I think, that really does, level the playing field uh, as well. Dan, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I've, I've left you out of this. Actually, I'm going to be a little bit um, uh, taking the opposite side here. I mean, because I've seen uh, in the US, the, mostly in the remote sensing world, um, the, uh, the size of the Series A's and the Series B, yes, it's a bit larger in the US, and maybe there's a little bit more, it's a little easier. But they're not that, they're still not at the level that you guys need, even in the US, to, to, to scale to a production size uh, environment. I mean, the largest that I have seen is Skybox. This was 90 million US, which is pretty good, right? And then there's a, there's a big gap. And then it's, what I've seen is in the 10 to 20 millions or something. Now, there's a whole world of launchers, that's right? But that seems to be dominated by billionaires that, that 
in the past built very fast sailing boats and now they're for fun build rockets. <laughs> so, um, um, so yes, the grass is a little bit greener south of the border, but I don't think it actually is uh, that much greener. And I think as a space industry, or, um, we should look at other industries that are facing similar problems uh, in, in raising funding. And I'm, I'm looking at, 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 at manufacturing, designing drugs, right? Uh, which is sort of similar of, um, it's a very long timeline. It is risky, there is a significant number of, the, of research that doesn't go to any useful drug. And then some pay off, and then there's, there's a big return out of that. So what would you say is the one thing you've learned from the, looking at the drug industry and the health industry? Because yeah, medical devices is, is a long slog as well. Right. Um, so I think it is what you mentioned about people can either deal with a technology risk or a market risk. And the funny thing is, is that is what I heard from the bankers in the rapid eye almost 20 years ago. Yeah, we don't want to deal with the technology risk. You, they told RapidEye, you should work with a prime that can underwrite the performance of, of that system. So they came, that's, that was their motivation to work with MDA. So the technical risk, the programmatic risk was, was basically covered by MDA and they had the market risk. So, so let's talk about that if we can, just the, the market risk, because you're right, there are alternate ways of financing. Yep. And one way that is the drug industry can raise money is that they know that at the end of the day, if the product is successful, there's a very well-defined market for it. Same thing, actually, in the space business in the United States. You're almost guaranteed, though I wouldn't say guaranteed, but there's a strong market for space-based data in the United States with domestic well, it's just government demand. There's a very large government uh, contracts that are awarded to commercial companies. And that's true also in Europe. Mm -hmm. And that kind of model is something we might learn from here in Canada, having a data policy that allows for purchase of Canadian satellite data would enable uh, Canadian companies to have an anchor or base load that give a base set of revenue that they can then scale their business on without necessarily having to go back to the financial markets. So there's, there's different mechanisms for raising money. Um, I, I will correct you on one point though, uh, Skybox was a $500 million sale to Google, not 90. So they were a lot bigger than that. Bigger. No, no, that, 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 that deal completed, and then a few weeks later, Google came in and just said, okay, that 90 million, fine. <laughs> we'll take the whole thing. <laughs> okay, so I was actually gonna switch gears, and that, that's a perfect, uh, you know, perfect segue, Stefan, so I don't know if we organize this. But you, you talked about position yourself in the market, and you talk about data policy in Canada, and how other national governments support their domestic uh, space industry. Is it really necessary to have government as an anchor client? Or is that a, is that a must or is that a, 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 nice, a nice to have and helps you way much, but having a government client actually um, be your anchor client, what does that do for you and, and does it have to happen that way? So, so let me start by saying that I would never have started GHGSAT if I were going to rely only on government revenue. Right? There has to be a commercial business case for the business. You have to be able to see a path to profitability and growth on the basis of commercial revenue alone. That being said, absolutely the space business, just about any successful company in the space business has had some sort of anchor revenue from government customers. Um, it's ironic that right now our anchor customer in the government, in, in terms of government customers, is not the Canadian government. Think about that, all right? So the, there's, there's a real benefit to space companies that are trying to scale to having a reliable source of long-term revenue um, at home or in a friendly market. Bashar? As a first customer, um, having any sort of government support uh, government launch um, shows uh, is, is a good product validation, I would say, and also is a good uh, way to demonstrate that um, we're generating some sort of revenue. So it, it, it's it's a way to mitigate, I would say, business risk. But again, um, 
we have uh, we've launched a few satellites, like government satellites, CSA or Defense in Canada, but on its own, it, it's not enough to sustain a business. Um, in the States, it's a bit different because uh, one of the largest launcher of satellites is the U.S. Army. So for anything that has to do with defense, you can make a business only out of it. But since we're Canadian, it's a bit harder. Uh, the global market is pretty interesting. The commercial market is pretty interesting. So um, I don't think we, we can sustain or live only living off government uh, programs or government contracts, but having a first revenue, first contract from uh, a government agency, uh, not a grant, a contract, is, is uh, a very strong validation. And also, uh, it's a way to take the company from, I mean, uh, of course, a customer, a commercial customer will be a bit less uh, willing or, or a bit more reluctant to sign um, to buy a launch on a launcher that, that never flew, but it has to happen a certain time. Because if you have a customer that pays upfront or that pays um, you know, uh, a part of the launch before, that can help fund the launch itself and that can uh, kind of push the technology beyond the point where it's still considered as a risk. Um, but again, living off only government contracts in Canada is, is uh, and, and again, that's the market, that's how it is. Yeah, I, I think I would make one clarification. It's not the government being your only client, yes, exactly. um, but also does that allow you to approach different clients from a different position? So it's not that you're, you're only doing government work, but how does that open up other doors? Uh, how do people perceive you if you don't have your own government as an anchor client? We talked about this on you know, the Canadian Space Advisory Board as well. Um, it, it's really a matter of how, does you, how do you position yourself in a global market without some sort of domestic report, support? So it's really that question. Dan, do you have any? I, I think it, it is probably the, one of the most powerful things that a government can do if they can do a take or pay contract, basically say, if you deliver me this type of service of this quality, I will buy it for this price. Um, that is something that startups or larger companies like MDA can take to the bank, literally sure. take to the bank and say, we have covered off a portion of the market risk and that portion we can now find other vehicles of financing for, like project financing. And, um, and, and it also set, some of the challenges that we have with, with these startups, what I've seen is um, not only um, they're, they're doing something new, there's no market yet, there's no pricing set. So if you have your first anchor customer that is willing to say, well, I'm going to give you $4 for so many kilograms of data, um, you have a start of a pricing model that you then can say, well, if Canada is willing to pay this, then I would expect that the U.S. would pay something similar. And you can start building that business case and you get a more solid foundation for your investors uh, to consider taking a stake in your company. So through, through Launchpad, does MDA act as an anchor client or for, for some of these businesses? Or Look can at the they... time. <laughs> <laughs> but again, you know, you're a big player in, in, in an ecosystem. So is, does it have the same weight? So, okay. So uh, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my mutual fund explanation. <laughs> um, so, so MDA is not an investment firm. Right? So we're not in the business for investing. So, however, uh, but we're an engineering firm and a, program, a programs firm. So we want to build things like we did for RapidEye, like where we took a stake in, in, uh, in, in as well. And in Skybox, same thing. Um, uh, so we, if somebody is willing to work with us, saying uh, we need an industrial partner or a programmatic partner or a market partner, we'll be there. And, um, uh, and we will have skin in the game. What shape or form that will take, I, that, that is really on a case-by-case basis. Uh, one aspect of, of scaling and, and positioning in this market is also bringing up your clients to be able to take whatever you're offering them, whether it's a service, whether it's data, whether it's information. How do you 
create that market that people are pulling what you want. And so that the demand is scaling at the same time as your technology and, and the supply. Do you guys have any answers to that? Uh, wow. Start by aiming for a market that there already has a demand and you're serving a need that exists, right? So it's ideally you're not creating a market, you're addressing a market that's already there. So in our case, for example, although it's maybe not obvious to many people in the room, there are, there's a market today that's served by thousands, of, literally thousands of different methods for monitoring greenhouse gas emissions from industrial facilities around the world. We're just offering a better, faster, cheaper way of doing that. So I, I hope I'm not creating one. I hope I'm serving one better. What about RapidEye? <laughs> so, uh, so let, let me, I mean, it's a long time ago. We can, we can probably talk about it. So, so one of the, the, bis, the, the part of the RapidEye business that, um, that it was funded uh, on was um, hail insurance. So in Europe, in Germany alone, there is about 3 billion euro of damage due to hailstorms. So uh, the thought of the company was, uh, if we can make that 1%, 2% more effective, we have a 60 million euro market in Germany alone. So one of the investors was Vereinigte uh, Hagelversicherung, which is United German uh, Hail Insurance. And uh, they invested in RapidEye for this data product. And let, can I? This is a funny story. Go for so, it. so let me explain how hail insurance was done before RapidEye. In 10 words or less. No, it's going to be a little bit more, but it will be worth it. So what happens is a farmer has a hailstorm, sees the field, oh no, there's, there's damage. So he calls the insurance company and got damage. So the insurance firm, he said, well, let's wait a little bit. Maybe the crops will grow back. We'll come by and do the assessment a little later. So, and then uh, a few days later, the assessor sh shows up, which is typically a retired farmer in a little station wagon with a ladder in the back. I'll explain the ladder in a second. He goes into the field with the farmer, and he looks at the crops and says, oh, yeah, okay, so this is a pretty heavy storm. This is 50% damage. Go back to the car, get the ladder. He climbs on the ladder. The farmer is holding the ladder, the retired farmer on top of the ladder, looks over the field and says, yeah, area-wise, this is about 30% affected, so multiply that together, your damage is X. Then go back, fill in the form, and it goes into the, into the thing. That is the process. So in, in Germany, the whole summer long, there are 2,000 retired farmers driving around in little station wagons with ladders, going to fields, climbing on ladders, looking out over. So clearly, we can... We can improve that. So that was a very convincing case, right? You, you would buy that. You would invest in that. So the Hill Insurance Company did too. However, this is a big operation. So for the Hill Insurance Company to actually start using the data, we launched in August. So the first time that they used it was next year. They did a trial of a certain area. Worked well. The next year, they said, well, let's do it on a state level in Germany, like a province level. And they expanded it. Only at the third year, they were ready to do it on a nationwide level. Well, RapidEye as a company could not wait for that scaling, right, to, to start using actually the capacity of, for the system that it was designed for. So um, in the end, the, the Hill insurance business case never really worked because it took so long for the Hill insurance company to actually integrate that data product in an existing system that it was very well established. And of course, there was a bit of resistance from the 2,000 uh, 2, retired farmers in their little station wagons as well. <laughs> but. Uh, Cordell, from your point of view, are you creating a market or are you serving a need that's out there? Yeah, I mean, we're in the unenviable position of, of really trying to create a, a market. And I, I mean, I, it's a little strange because it's not like there aren't people out there using encryption. The, the problem is that, you know, you're talking about a three-year cycle. 
We're talking about a, a market that changes on decadal cycles here. There hasn't, there tends to be upheaval in the cryptography market every 20 years or so. And we're approaching, you know, that, that mark now, but, uh, you know, it, it's 20 years or so, and you don't necessarily know uh, when that's going to tip. And, and one of the, the things, one of the pieces of advice we've been given uh, very early on is, is find that person whose hair is on fire. Um, and find that customer. The pain point. Yeah, the, the pain point. Uh, and I mean, in this business uh, the, that we're focusing on, it's really hard to find that. And that's one of the things I alluded to in my opening remarks is the, the space industry. We've, we've gone around and around and around trying to find that person whose hair is on fire. I think what you're going to be seeing in the, in the coming years is uh, the space industry is actually might be one of the, the people who are most on fire. You're going to start hearing about spacecrafts being hacked. Uh, spacecraft ground operations centers being hacked. Um, oh. <laughs> Easy. I think you might have a conversation later. We, we'll definitely have a conversation later. Um, and uh, at that point, uh, the space industry is going to have some really tough questions to answer from people like the insurance industry. Um, you know, when you look at what's going on in the space industry, where you don't just have people putting up one or two or even five or six satellites anymore. You're talking about people putting up hundreds or thousands of satellites uh, that all can communicate with each other in a network. If one satellite gets hacked, what does that mean for the rest of the constellation now? And, and so I think some of these uh, cybersecurity threats are truly existential to, to these, uh, these networks. And, and so, yeah, we're still looking for that hair on fire, but I think uh, the space industry should be worried. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Great. Okay. Um, let's move on and talk about ecosystems a little bit. Uh, many of us actually on this panel are involved with the Creative Destruction Lab down in, in, at U of T, University of Toronto, on their space stream. And we also have Launchpad, who I think I would can say consists of creating an ecosystem in space. Um, what are the key roles that an ecosystem um, in new space play in sustain, sustaining scaling? Um, I'm thinking Dan and Cordell maybe, but anybody can answer this one? Well, actually, maybe I can, I can just start quickly. Um, so one of the things that we've just talked about is, is government as a customer. Imagine how incredibly difficult it is as a startup. You're five people, say, and you want to sell to the government of Canada. Where do you even begin? And that's you know something that a, an ecosystem that includes some some players who have been there before can really help with, uh, and that, that's just one example among many. Um, I think in space, actually, I think we're really lacking any a, a proper ecosystem, and it's something that I think there are people out there like Satellite Canada are, are trying to actually tackle that problem. Uh, but just getting started, I think we could really benefit from from a proper ecosystem in Canada. We sort Could of, you define what you mean by proper ecosystem? Um, what I mean is, is a, a system of entities and organizations that are truly finding ways to work together and help each other. Uh, there are all kinds of ways in which you know, people compete in this industry, and that shouldn't prevent them from actually finding ways to work together as well. Um, you know, we just signed an NDA not that long ago with one of the few competitors we have in the entire world because despite us you know, ultimately going for the long-term goal, there are inevitably ways that we can, we can collaborate to, to the success of both companies. I think that's true of, of any industry. Um, there's no reason why we can't all find ways to be more efficient in things, exchange ideas. Uh, and, and we see this, we straddle the, the space and quantum fields, and we see this happening in the quantum side of things to everybody's benefit, um, and especially, I think, on that government side. Lobbying the government, working with the government, it, it really can help the, the early stage startups. I'll jump in. The, uh, as a startup, the, there's a balance between breaking the mold, doing something different with a unique piece of IP or a new idea, and for that, an ecosystem isn't always the best thing. However, you, get to, you do get to a point where, as you grow, it's really important to have the resource pool around you, to have the, the government support around you, to have uh, just like-minded people who understand what you're doing around you as well. And I think in Canada, a relatively small country in the global scope of things, we need to be really creative about how we do that. 
So in terms of hardware, we, we've actually sourced everything within Canada. Everything we've done, we've built our payloads, satellites, our operations, all built in Canada, and I think that's been great. It's, it's helped, it's a bunch of like-minded people, we understand how each other work and think, and that's good. Uh, on the, the, uh, the atmospheric science side of what we do, there's a handful of people, literally I could probably count on two hands the number of people in Canada who really understand what we do. However, I need to look over to Europe, and there's a, a whole group of people working in the Netherlands, in Germany, who are world-class experts in this stuff. There's also a few at NASA, JPL, and a few in, in Japan. And so because we're so scattered, we literally have to get together on a global basis to be able to progress together this, uh, th this technology, this science that we do together, um, and in our case, apply it to a business. And, and then finally, uh, we also have to exist within our customers' worlds because that's how we're going to make money. So th there's a whole understanding of our customer markets, and guess what? There's not a lot of oil and gas in Quebec, and it turns out it's not really popular in Quebec. And so we have to find a way to be able to relate to our oil and gas customers. And now, surprisingly or not, we now have offices in Houston and in Calgary because that's where our customers are. We need to understand them and understand that world, that ecosystem. So I guess my overall message is ecosystems to begin with are a little oversold when you're a startup, but as you grow, I think they're critical and we have to be really creative about how we do it. I guess what I would, I would add to that is I, when I look at ecosystems, I look at it in the sense of there's a certain amount of resilience um, and sustainability within the communi community so that heaven forbid, uh, a startup fails or an idea doesn't go anywhere, that there's a sense of people can take that IP and take the good from the bad and possibly regenerate into something new, that the talent that you, and, the, and the ideas that you've developed don't just disappear um, into the banking industry, that there's somehow there's a, a way to redistribute and reabsorb the lessons learned and, and then potentially um, you know, build onto the next generation. So that, that's one of the things I see as an ecosystem as well, is not just looking at one startup on its own, but looking at how can we use that experience in different ways should it not quite turn out in the way it is. So that that learning and that technology is not lost as well. And those people are not lost. Yep. Dan, do you? Yeah, and with, with Launchpad, we're, we're trying to take also a little bit um, do our part in, in, in helping that ecosystem. Um, I, I have several companies in my, in my uh, database or, or in the conversations that we have, and there, there's no real direct benefit for MDA uh, in working with them. But if they are successful, if these companies are successful, that is good for the Canadian space industry. That is good for the ecosystem. That is good for young talent to have opportunities to work on interesting things. And that is good for MDA. So we're, we're taking a bit of a longer term on those, uh, on those opportunities. Great. Just a warning, I've got one sort of set of questions left that I'd like to ask the panel, but if you guys are getting ready to ask a question, your turn is next. So uh, we have two mics up here, so if you want to start thinking about your question and getting ready to go to the mics, we'll be taking questions from the audience very soon. Um, yeah? I would chip in on that. Um, we, we talked about, about uh, uh, a lot about CDL and you know, a uh, few of us here Creative are, Destruction Lab for people exactly, who don't yeah. know, yeah. Uh, we're, we're graduates and, and for us, um, that ecosystem there, when we talk about that, the interest was really to be able to talk um, with other startups who are looking to, uh, you know, they're launching your satellites, they have satellites they want to launch and just better understand those pain points. Uh, but also better understand uh, our positioning and, and where we fit in the market based on what they're looking for, but based on uh, how badly they're looking for those kind of dedicated cheap services. Um, and that helped us with the help of mentors that we had uh, through CDL um, better understand how we can be competitive um, and how our uh, pricing can not only help us be well positioned in the market but also contribute to the creation of a bigger market, bigger pie, uh, so that we can be not only one of the very few players being able to, 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 to 
you know, profit from that market because the price points. In fact, we believe that our prices, once we'll be able to launch regularly, will be so low that will be there's companies that will be relying on satellites to do research or to do development or to do communication because otherwise um, it would have not been possible to do otherwise. You know, like instead of doing it the old-fashioned way, let's let's say doing pharma research in a sense or another, they could maybe do it from out of space. But since we are the only people who can uh, offer, I mean, we, we want to be the only people uh, looking to offer that kind of dedicated service at such a low price point, uh, we'll be profiting from that market. But I would say all that came to one word is having judgment, entrepreneurship judgment, being able to uh, make decisions, being able to uh, better make decisions and improve uh, that decision-making process by talking to mentors who have been there before, who grew up companies, who, who are able to scale up companies and, and do it successfully. Um, so you, you got to get out of the mold. Uh, you, you shouldn't be afraid to, to do something new. Um, but being with other companies trying to do the same thing um, allow you to know where you are compared to them and also talking to customers. Yeah. Great, great ideas. Um, we've talked about market, we talked about ecosystems, a little bit about financing, we could talk a little bit more about that, but there's one thing also that you have to have a business model that, that works. Um, and you talked about looking at what did the market need um, and then you decided that you were going to launch and operate your own satellites. Uh, Cordell, you talked about this idea of cryptography, and you went through a few pivots in terms of exactly what was the business model around quantum computing cryptography. Um, and Bashar, I know also we had conversations, but is it a rocket engine, is it a service, is it a launcher? These, how you decide to wrap and, and package your technology is really a key uh, decision as a startup. So can you guys talk about maybe some of the, the criteria and um, the decision making you decided to, how do you position yourself in a market, whether it be hardware, whether it be a service, whether it be you know, software, how did you guys take technology through to define a business model? I would start on that. Mm -hmm. um, in our case, we have uh, a technology that's related to um, rocket propulsion. W one of the most consequential decisions when you're uh, designing a new launch vehicle is deciding what kind of propellants you want to use, what kind of oxidizer, and what kind of fuel on each of the stages. So these are uh, high-level, uh, very consequential architectural decisions. So in our case, since we're using uh, a non-conventional uh, combination, um, it wasn't really very easy for us to penetrate the market and just sell the engine. Um, and also notice that new space companies are um, inherently attached to their uh, vertical integration aspect. So they wouldn't want to buy the engines from a supplier and just uh, depend on that supplier. The other thing is um, the main factor is, is our survivability and durability. So we have something that we believe will reduce dramatically the cost of launch. Um, and we want to be able to harness that kind of advantage to our full advantage. Um, so I would say these are the, the, the main parameters, uh, but also um, you gotta have a product that, that, that is uh, easy to sell, easy to scale, and easy to fund. And um, sometimes you know, selling the engine would have been a good idea, making an engine and selling it because it would have generated short-term profits. But for the long-term um, durability of the company, that wasn't the best thing to do. So um, I think um, looking for that delayed gratification and, and, and accepting that, okay, well, sure, we'll, we may not have the kind of funding we want right away, but for the long-term you know, uh, objectives of the company, being a launch vehicle manufacturer is, is the best thing to do, and this is what we came in at CDL, and, and, and kind of we came, we we, we um, went back to the original idea. Um, yeah. yeah, you had a number of conversations. Exactly. Yes. Going, Very really, expensive. is that the way you should be going? But yeah, <laughs> exactly. I, I, you know that idea of what is in the long-term benefit of the exactly. company, exactly. Um, rather than you know, pitching yourself into a supply chain or a, 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 a sales channel that wouldn't allow you to grow exactly. and, and scale. 
uh, is a really yeah. is, is something that doesn't always come up. Exactly, really and how competitive can you be on the long term? Because a lot of other companies will be successful, mm -hmm. but you want to be competitive in 15, 20 years, and, and you want to be always on the on the on the forefront of, of being always to, you know, being able to bring new ideas and 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 remain disruptive, not only today but in 15, 20 years. And and sometimes you have to make choices now that will affect your business and that will affect your technology down the road. And, and you gotta be. You got to be aware of that and, and take that into consideration. You? Sure. <laughs> I'll dive in. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've got a bit of gray hair now, so I've been around the technology loop a couple of times, and I've lived it once from the point of view of we had the best product that we knew could uh, outperform everything on the market, and this was satellite telecommunications at the time. And uh, it, it just turned out that the market was not really in that much need of the whiz-bang technology we wanted to offer. And it wound up being a real slog taking what we as engineers and scientists thought was the best thing around and trying to shove it down the throat of the market. Um, it just didn't work out. So when it came around to GHGSAT, I really passionately wanted to do it the other way around, which is... Uh, start with that market need. I, okay, I knew we had some technologies at our disposal. I knew there was a trend in miniaturization of technology and sensors that would make it possible to operate a useful revenue-generating sensor off a microsatellite or a nanosatellite so that you could do this as a startup. Uh, so I knew that the, the, the wind was at our back. I also knew that uh, I was looking for markets where there would be a, a real need for a solution from space. So. Uh, climate change is there's clearly an area where there's um, a lot of interest right now, um, and, and apparently Canada's just declared a climate change emergency or climate emergency. It's every day there's a new headline. So, uh, and at the end of the day, what sparked it and and what made us realize that there was a true need for this is when Quebec and California announced a cap and trade scheme in 2010. And what that means is that uh, they put a price on a ton of carbon, which is not politically a very popular thing right now in a lot of parts of the country. But I think every serious economist will point out to you, and by the way, when, no matter what side of the political spectrum you're on, left or right, will point out to you that the most, cost, uh, the most efficient way economically of addressing uh, carbon and climate change is to actually uh, put a price on a ton of carbon, whether that's through a tax or some sort of cap-and-trade scheme. And so when Quebec, California announced a cap-and-trade scheme, which is putting a price on a ton of carbon, made me realize that people who are emitting today will need to better understand their emissions. And I knew that satellite provide a, use, a, a, a truly unique and revolutionary way for a lot of these companies to be able to get the kind of data they need in order to manage that financial risk. So instead of going for the technology push, I was, I was looking for that technology pull and then finding a solution to serve that, that, that demand pull. Yeah, I, I guess I would, I would counter that it wasn't necessarily a technology pull. It was a demand pull. demand pull. pull. Yeah. It's a poor choice. Sorry. Okay. Wrong words. Demand pull. Because people needed data. Um, Correct. And how you get that data is what you had to figure out. Correct. Um, as opposed to a technology, I've got a great new widget. Yeah. I lived the push. didn't work. And I was looking for the pull. Mm -hmm. And that, that's really at the heart of GHG set. And the pull defined how you were going to structure your business. And, and the technology we we're going to use. Yeah, definitely. I'd like to thank my panel members. Thank you for being a great audience. Uh, hope you have a great day. And uh, I'm sure we'll be around to talk if people want to talk to us. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of the Space Cube podcast. If you like this show, please support us on Patreon. The address is patreon.com slash we really appreciate feedback, and to help us, we ask you consider to write a review on Apple Podcast or Google Play Music if you're so inclined. If you have any comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spaceq.ca, or you can post them on our website at spaceq.ca, where you'll find an archive of each episode. If you send me a comment by email, I'll write back to you as soon as I can. On Twitter, you can follow us at Canada in Space, and if you use Facebook, you can find all our articles and links to the podcast on our page, The Space Q. If you like the show, please subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app.